Hi, you're tuned to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Sainting, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm doing something a little different. I wanted to talk to two different graduate students who have similar research, but they're from different departments. And I wanted to see, I wanted to kind of get a conversation going um, about similarities and differences in their research and how their approach coming from different backgrounds leads to kind of different ideas about similar topics. So I'm joined by Sophie Fitzmorris from the Department of History. Welcome to the show, Sophie. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And Wenjing Zhu from the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management. Welcome to the show, Wenjing. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's so great to have you here. So just so that we all start off knowing where we're coming from, I wanted to give a second for both of you to kind of briefly introduce your research projects. Tell us a little bit of what, about what you do. That'll kind of set up where our conversation is going to go. Sophie, why don't you get us started and tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so my project is a material and environmental history of the telegraph in the United States empire from roughly this, um, the Mexican-American War in 1846 to 1848 to the Spanish-American War in 1898. And my project looks at this uh, this technology that is almost always talked about in very abstract and immaterial terms. Uh, my project looks at it through its materiality, through its material dimensions, the resources that it used, the labor that was used to construct and maintain telegraph lines, um, the space that it occupied, and its interactions with the non-human world, including non-human animals. The project, the sort of geographical hinge of the project is San Francisco, because San Francisco was the meeting place of three of the largest long-distance communication infrastructure projects in the 19th century. Wenjin, could you tell us a little bit about your research project? Of course. So I am a wildlife movement ecology. So in general, I look at how animals move across a landscape. And for my dissertation project, I specifically look at how human infrastructures, such like fences and roads, interact with long-distance animal migration. And my research area is more specifically in southwest Wyoming, basically adjacent to the Yellowstone National Park, and we sometimes refer it as uh, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And in the area, basically outside of the park, we have a lot of ranching land and pastures where uh, most of the fences were constructed for uh, fencing for pasturing purposes. So basically, I look at how in that region, specifically the pronghorn antelopes and the mill deer, how do they respond when they encounter fences? The thing that most struck me when I was like putting this idea together and building out like how we would talk about it was that, you know, Sophie coming from the Department of History, uh, Wenjin coming from kind of a more biological department, have almost opposite points of view on this interaction, this kind of, I don't know if, I, if it's necessarily a conflict, but, you know, maybe a human-wildlife conflict. And so just to get us started, I wanted to get both of your thoughts on like that kind of framing and what you think when I say that, um, you know, like that you're looking at it kind of as humans versus nature from two, from different sides, from the nature side and the human side. Why don't we get started with Wenjing for this question? Okay. I think it's actually a pretty big question in terms of how we think about human nature interaction. And it is true when I first started my project, it is mostly from a wildlife perspective because I was just fascinated by long distance animal migration. And as they cover our 
cover large geographic areas, then they always kind of bump into human uh, developmental facilities and like buildings. And then more recently, we started to think about fences because it's more just for the longest time, it's on the landscape for, I guess, not in terms of a historical length, but at least for more than 100 years, it was in the U.S. West and how it's kind of shaping the way animals interact with the world. But as I kind of dig more into this topic, I started to realize the human part of the history of why fences are on the landscape becoming super interesting to me. For me, now I'm at the point that I realize in order to think about how wildlife interact with human infrastructure, it's also important to think about from the other perspective, like why human want to put the fences there and why and how that kind of infrastructure actually play both ways that it shifts people's perspective about the nature world and also more like a feedback loop in some way. Yeah, I think that that term you use, feedback loop, is super interesting because I definitely, in my project, I also see this as a sort of two-way process that certainly just as much as animals and space itself and even the weather affected people's ability to communicate rapidly at long distances, the physical infrastructure of the telegraph also had profound environmental consequences which are almost never talked about by historians. This technology is is almost always talked about in these kind of immaterial terms as something that annihilated space, eliminated distance, dematerialized information. Like these are phrases that come up again and again. And the consequence of this, I think, is that historians have mostly concentrated on some of the things that the telegraph facilitated, like the rapid circulation of capital and the dissemination of news over great distances, but they don't normally talk about the actual infrastructure that facilitated these things. And so I think in terms of my framing as the ways in which the non-human world intruded upon the telegraph, partly that's a pushback against these really triumphalist claims about what technology can achieve, a kind of pushback about also against the historical literature itself. So what people were writing at the time about the ability of the telegraph to annihilate space, but also what what historians have written about it since is that this technology has been written about as very divorced from the natural world. So my framing of the the non-human world sort of intruding on the telegraph is in a sense, a pushback against that that kind of the triumph of technology narrative. Actually, uh, this reminds me of a very fun fact about fences when I was looking more into the social ecological synergy perspective of fences. I learned that basically the barbed wire fencing was invented in the Western US uh, late 19th centuries at the very beginning because it's also a metal material. So people actually use fences also as a telegraph telephone line. So in some way, as some part of the history, tele- telegraph and telephone and communication was actually, you know, our topic perfectly kind of was merged at some point in the history. That's really fascinating. Um, I didn't know that about about barbed wire being used to transmit electromagnetic signals. But I think you, you also bring up a really important point about the ways in which different infrastructures are entangled. I think we often think about, or at least historians have written about the railroad and the telegraph sort of in separate terms. And likewise, you know, Few historical 
few history books write about the the steamship, the railroad, and the telegraph as, like you say, a synergistic system. But these technologies are all entangled with one another. And so in a sense, sorting out the different technologies from one another is in a way artificial. You know, just as an example, you know, telegraph wires were around the 1880s after the invention of the telephone, telegraph wires would often use telephone poles. So when I'm trying to figure out, you know, statistics on how much wood the telegraph consumed, I also have to be mindful that often telegraph wires were using telephone poles. So yeah, it's a very kind of entangled process. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Actually, one of the reasons that why as from my reading, why they use barbed wire as telephone wire is because in the West, there's no like timber or other ways that you just have metal structure that's across a huge space. And because barbed wire was there, so like, why not? It's like one way to really connect very distant um, communities in some way. And also it's kind of also synchronized with the development of railroad. That's the entire reason that's kind of behind the transformation of land use in the West from kind of cattle drive, long cattle drive to the railhead. And over time, people started to realize the resource of water and grasses are very important. And some of some some people first started to claim a land by fencing it off. And then as the first person started to do that, then more and more people realize if I don't do that, I don't do the same thing, then I will lose access to the resources and also my way of transportation to the market. So then everyone started to do fencing and just in very short amount of time, barbed wire just kind of encroached the entire landscape. Yeah, exactly. As you were saying, a lot of the technology and way of we inter like relationship with nature, it all kind of develops in synergy. Yeah. And I think, um, the, this this question of land use is super important. I think again, this with with the telegraph, this comes back to the language of annihilating space. That this has led us to kind of forget the ways in which building telegraph lines required the ownership of land. It, it, it required rights to use land. And I know that historians have a habit of saying, you know, my subject, the thing I'm talking about is the thing that happened first and the thing that's most important. But it is notable that the, the transcontinental telegraph, which was built in 1861, was built eight years before the first transcontinental railroad. And actually these, these rights to use land, I mean, it, the reason why it took so long for the, the telegraph to be built because the technology existed, had existed for almost 20 years by the time the transcontinental telegraph was built. And one of the reasons why it took so long for it actually to be built was that there was the, the South and the North couldn't agree about the route that the telegraph would take because they realized that this would involve giving land to corporations, which in turn they feared would lead to the settlement of that land. And that was a, you know, I won't get into the whole history of the, the whole history of it, but but the, ultimately it came down to a question of sectional politics and the and the use of land. So again, you know, when we think about the telegraph as something that annihilates space and kind of exists in the ether, it erases this really important story of uh, the the kind of geopolitics 
that's informing the construction of telegraph lines. Definitely, I can think about many examples when fences first started to get built in in the West, especially there are multiple law law cases in Texas where people. Like the fence line will separate the land, and then people on both sides started to fight. And then, like they will, there's like a case where like more than a hundred deaths will be involved in some sort of violent conflict. And there's also kind of very funny kind of fence cutting gangster type of thing, like because some people don't like fences when it first started to be to show up on the landscape, and then they will just at night they will secretly. Go near fences and cut them. So then it's con- constant battle between putting on fences and cutting fences and putting on fences and cutting fences. It's definitely involves a lot of like conflicts happening on the land, and also it's a push for people to have the sense of territory and ownership before there are fences. No one owns the land, and once you put a fence there, suddenly this piece of resources start to belong to someone. And that kind of that's in some way I was just thinking as an animal today, trespassing all these complicated land use and ownership mosaic. It's really fascinating if you can link it to the historical backstory of how this whole mosaic first came into being. I have found some sort of anecdotal evidence that telegraph lines did interrupt animal migration, which is kind of confusing in a way because we tend to think of animal migration as being stopped by physical barriers. But this kind of scraps of anecdotal information I found suggests that it's not so much, or it wasn't so much the, the the fact that the wooden poles were stopping migration, because obviously, you know, there's you know, many hundreds of yards in between these poles, but it was more the fact that they were really heavily trafficked by people. You know, this speaks to this question of again, it speaks to the question of the materiality of the telegraph that it required almost kind of constant reconstruction and repair. And in the in the case of the transcontinental telegraph, especially in the 1860s, it required protection by soldiers on horseback because of this, the ongoing war between US settlers and indigenous people. So I found this this one reference. Um, it was a Lakota man who was concerned that the telegraph would prevent buffalo and, uh, and other game from coming south. And somebody mentioned that the antelope were timid and distrustful, and they would stop at the telegraph lines and cautiously examine the poles before venturing to pass between them. And so it really got me thinking about this question of how um, knowledge of migration, which is, I, I know with, I've read about in with some animals, this is kind of passed down by learning within within herds and family learning almost. So I'm sort of curious whether an experience of an area being trafficked and and this, the presence of people could affect these migratory routes, even in the absence of a kind of continuous concrete barrier. And I would really, you know, I think that historians can learn a lot from biologists and ethologists in this in this respect. Yeah, that is something that I was also really fascinated by. I can think some examples that's like almost like a reverse process, as you were saying, there were a physical barriers there and then they removed it. But the animals doesn't realize it's not there anymore. For example, there is a boundary between, I'm pretty sure it's Czech, 
and Slovakia during the Cold War that there were there was a either a wall or a fence, and then like after the war they took it out, but then the deer never migrated, never crossed, and then you can if by the GPS tracking that they collected from the animals, they see they like just had a hard stop at the ghost boundary. And then there's another case in Africa where it's similar for a, a, like a fence for elephant that they intentionally open up some sections along a long fence. So hopefully the elephant can go through these new openings. But at the same time, there's also a part of the fence that was just broken for a really long time. And for longest time, all the animals kind of traffic through that little small broken part. Even after the opening of new sections of fences, all the animals still go through the broken part, which is more narrow and more difficult to go through. So definitely that speak for in some way, with at least within a generation, a lot of the animal migration is depending on their spatial memory. And for the animal to make a decision that's like very different from they used to do requires some assessment of cost and benefit. Because if they venture to a new route, there's new uncertainties. Maybe they have other unknown barriers that that's there. Unless their current route it was really disturbed, then that kind of pushed them to try to make a new decision. So, in some way, that's kind of one of the reason why the long distance migration, especially, requires the protection for the corridor. Basically, want to figure out what is their main traffic route and try to avoid that part. That's kind of one one way we、uh, kind of conservation implication of a lot of movement ecology study is to figure out where is the core area that they're going to use and try to not put more barriers over there. But also, sometimes we do also underestimate the ability for animals to adjust their migration. For example, if they have a If there's a new fence that's built, there are multiple different ways for them to adjust their behavior. They can jump over, or sometimes they、uh, they just migrate to a new places, or they just go around it. There are many. Basically, we are having this shift recently that we always view animals as this passive object that is absorbing the impact from human societies, forgetting that they are also actively adjusting their own behavior to the new world. And in some way, the best conservation is not necessarily bring them back to where they were, rather than how do we find the best way to make them more sustainable for the future, because the world is different now, and we have to. Make adjustment and do conservation management based on the new state. That's really interesting that you mentioned this question of sort of adaptation and learning and and sort of plasticity, because that's something that I found as well with my study of woodpeckers. So telegraph telegraph wires caused huge problems for migratory birds that would fly into the wires. Especially birds that were low flying or migrated at night, they absolutely, you know, hundreds of thousands of birds were killed by flying into telegraph wires. And there's some evidence that they did adapt and learn to avoid the wires. It's difficult to know from the evidence whether observations of reduced populations of birds dying from telegraph wires year on year. Was due to the birds avoiding the wires, or whether it was just due to the fact that the population had been so diminished that they were showing up less underneath the wires. 
But another example of, of animal adaptation, which is really fascinating, is with woodpeckers, which um, used telegraph poles as surrogate trees. And there's some debate about whether this was a kind of result of deforestation and habitat loss, or whether it was because of the opportunities presented by poles that it, that often telegraph poles were higher than the surrounding trees in certain areas so that they could be um, sort of preferential to woodpeckers building nests because then they could they could have a better view of the surrounding. But it's absolutely undeniable that the con- that woodpeckers everywhere adapted to the construction of telegraph lines in ways that caused real problems for people building and, and using the telegraph. You know, there were they would ex- excavate nests, nest cavities in telegraph poles, which could often cause the poles to actually break. Um, and they would also just, you know, peck into the poles to access insects. One of the really fascinating sort of dimensions of this that I found is that this kind of adaptation by birds really undermined the kind of prevailing ways of thinking about animal behavior at the time, um, because it kind of wasn't really believed that animals could impact technology. It was only the other way around. You know, when, when, when people wrote about and talked about the telegraph wires killing birds, it was very much sort of, well, there's nothing we can do about this because technology will just, it's inevitable and it will affect birds in the way that it does. But what they weren't prepared for was the fact that birds could actually impact on technology and sort of adapt to it in in surprising ways that humans kind of couldn't predict or control. Definitely. I think that also points to a important theme of my dissertation research, which is the differential impact of the infrastructure. And we always have to think about like animals are not just one kind of species or it's like many different kinds of species with very different body size, with different, very different requirements for nature and very different way of interacting with nature world. And even just for my my study that looks that looking at um, pronghorn and mule deer, they're both ungulates and they both do wide ranging movement. But even between these two, there are very different responses from these two different animals. Like pronghorn, they are really bad at going, uh, jumping over fences because they're really good at running for long distance really fast, but they just never learn how to jump in evolutionary process. But a mule deer, in other cases, they're really good at jumping. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you are able to jump fences, it brings like you are fine with fences. It's still jumping itself is a lot of cost in terms of energy. And and then after you jump, maybe you then get trapped in a more difficult pasture that's more heavily fenced. So it's super important for us to kind of really go down to small details to like, what are their behavior adjustments to even the same barrier they're facing. Actually, also, my recent chapter was looking at the individual differences within the same population. Basically, where it's like kind of the idea of animal personality. Uh, Some animals might be more like bolder animals. So they're just more adventurous. And then they just try every time when they encounter a barrier, they just try to overcome it. But some animals are kind of more shy and they just like, I don't need to go far away. I can, I'm, I'm fine. I can go by, I can have my life here. So 
in both ways, they get to survive. But then these kind of differential decisions are also kind of very fascinating. So definitely our understanding for how animals are re responding to changing world is getting kind of more detailed. And in some way, I would say like people started to realize their own arrogance against animals back in the day and now started to really learn from what they see rather than kind of superimposing some sort of assumption uh, that, yeah, they're just like all are disturbed by development and then like seeing this kind of fascinating flip. And about the bird adapting to the pole, actually I have a example from Tibet where people realize the birds, mostly eagles are using the poles to put their nests because it is the highest point. It's like flat area. And the highest point is the pole. So it's really good at their, like increase their hunting success. And because of that, people started to put intentionally put more poles so they can actually have the eagle to control the rodents population that is actually disturbing the pasture land. So here we're kind of seeing this like, mutual learning, like basic human animals, like we mutually adapt to the new world. And then we are trying to kind of take advantage of what we understand and like kind of evolve into a new state. So it's very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I love this this concept of the kind of co-cons, like how, how um, infrastructure and technology and, and animal habitats kind of are co-constituted and that they're, they're made together. You know, and I think it's with a lot of the language that we use to talk about technology, it kind of, you know, elides the fact that telegraph poles were essentially just trees. I mean, you don't have to do very much to a, to a tree to turn it into a telegraph pole. And so from the perspective of, of non-human animals, they're seeing that pole as a tree even though people invest it with a lot of kind of importance as, as private property, as part of this technological infrastructure. Technology always is based on a material infrastructure. It always exists in certain places and uses certain resources. Even the most, you know, the, te the telegraph is in many senses, is in many senses like the quintessentially modern technology. Um, and a lot of the kind of language surrounding the telegraph, a lot of this kind of excited language about the annihilation of space is the same language that we use when we talk about the internet. Um, yet the internet and the telegraph both have very profound material impacts on the non-human non world and on the environment. And so I think when we're you know, addressing these questions of how we can make our relationship with other animals more equitable and you know fight this crisis that we're in i think it's it's worth remembering always that technology always comes at some kind of a material cost and that looking at technology through infrastructure rather than in a kind of abstract sense is a is a productive way to think about it and i really when Jing, i'm really interested by what you're saying about you know we shouldn't kind of be condescending towards animals because they're adaptive and they learn and i think that you know that's speaks to an, an, another really important point, which I hope my research conveys, which is that space matters and, and localities, the particularities of space are really important for these questions. You know, when we're talking about technology, we have to think about how it exists in actual 
spaces, local habitats and so forth, rather than just kind of floating above above us in the ether. Definitely. That reminds me of a lot of people always ask me, so what should we do with fences? Can we just remove them? But then you should think about like the fences are here in like a, as a materialized infrastructure on the landscape, it already has changed the interaction human has with this piece of land and also animal has with this piece of land. So at that time, even when the materialized presence of fence is not there, it's not that easy to then switch back all the other relationships. Like from your work, I see there is this trend that you push for being more physical. And in my field, it's rather kind of like pushing from the only physical to more like a relational thinking. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I guess fences are kind of the material, the materialization of, of ideas about property and, and land ownership, exactly. which are far more kind of persistent and tenacious than the actual material sort of reality of them definitely so like when people are thinking about when i talk about okay i study how fences influence human uh influence animal movement what i'm really talking about is how this division of land ownership influence animal movement and how the detached human relationship affect animal movement yeah when historians talk about the telegraph, they're talking about these big conceptual problems of like capital and the integration of markets. And I'm trying to say, but no, it's a material, it's a physical thing. I, I love the kind of juxtaposition that you put there between our research. I think it really captures these different perspectives that we're coming from. Yeah, that was great. Great way for it to end. I owe a lot of credit to my two guests for making this conversation run really smoothly and saying a lot of interesting things. Today, I've been speaking with Sophie Fitzmorris from the Department of History and Wenjing Zhu from the uh, Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management. Again, it's been so much fun talking to you both. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.